Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. It's the entrance on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's podcast, when I'm recording this intro from the mainland of Orkney, we're up here to finish off a series all about prehistoric Scotland. It's an absolutely incredible place with some amazing prehistory from Neolithic all the way down to the Iron Age. So we're going from things such as Mace Howe Chamber Tomb all the way down to Gurness Broch Village. That's all to come. We've recorded so much content, both for the podcast and for the TV channel and for the YouTube channel. So stay tuned for all of that in due course. I can't wait to share it with you all. But in the meantime, for the podcast today, you might have guessed it already. We are wrapping up our special Hannibal mini-series with Dr. Louis Rawlings. We've talked about the Battle of Lake Trasimene. We talked about the aftermath of that battle. And now we're focusing in on Hannibal's next great clash against the Romans, his most famous or infamous clash against the Romans, what some people have called Hannibal's greatest victory. We are, of course, talking about the Battle of Cannae in 216 BC. Louis, he was absolutely fantastic. He is so enthusiastic. I don't have to speak much at all because he tells the story so well. I really do hope you enjoy this episode. It's a deep dive into the battle and what happened immediately after it. And without further ado, to talk all about this, here's Louis. So Louis, how does it go from there to the Battle of Cannae itself? So the winter drags on and the winter actually lasts until May before Hannibal because he can't really move out until the crops are growing again, until there are supplies to move to. So he stays, his supplies begin to fail, but he's, he's still there. The Romans have decided that Fabius's tactics are not getting them anywhere. You know, it's preserved the army, but thanks, but no thanks, really. We want Hannibal dead. We want the army out. We want this war over. So they decide to raise a super big army. So they, their new consuls, who are Gaius Terentius Varro, and Aemilius Paulus are given double-sized armies. So normally a consular army is two legions and equivalent number of allies. So around about 16,000 to 20,000 in total. And the legions are normally 4,200 men. Polybius says that the legions that were raised for this campaign were bolstered up to 5,000 men, that the cavalry numbers were enhanced, and that 
each console was given four legions instead of two, an equivalent number of allies. So they now each had 40,000 plus men, 80,000 wow. total. In fact, 86,000 wow. since Polybius in total. This probably, however, somehow includes Fabius's men. So there are new legions raised and then they're added to the old legions that they march out to join. So some of the army is green, completely green, and some of the army are these veterans of Gerunium. So these join together, but by the time the consuls with the reinforcements get to Gerunium, Hannibal's gone. Hannibal has just marched out only a few days earlier, heading south towards Apulia, where he's looking for supplies. And Hannibal, in fact, finds one of these Roman storage facilities, essentially a sort of a base where they've kept all their grain, they've stockpiled their grain and siloed it, ready for the coming Roman campaign. Knowing that Hannibal's going to be on the move, the Roman armies are going to march to their supplies. And Hannibal seizing this is quite an annoyance. He captures the supplies at Cannae and can kind of just sit on his heels. It's a lovely place for, for Hannibal's army. It's a lovely river, the River Alfidus. It's got a small town, but the plains, oh, they're gorgeous for cavalry. They just love, you know, these are, these are just right for the kind of uh, military operations that Hannibal likes to conduct. So it's a great, strong position. He can just wait for the Roman armies to come along and see what they're going to get up to. And it's also, and I guess, an appealing place for a Roman army too, those flat plains. So it works for Hannibal and it's also tantalising for a Roman army too when it arrives. Yeah, normally by instinct, Roman armies like to fight on the flat and on the plains mm. as well because their infantry is, is line infantry, it's heavy infantry for, for a start. I mean, it is flexible enough to fight in mountains and hills and passes, but psychologically, Romans like to fight on flat ground, you know, big open terrain. Um, with an army of 80,000 men, you need a lot of plain to fit them on. So psychologically, it's, it works for the Romans too. So they, get, they, they know they outnumber Hannibal quite substantially, not quite two to one, but near, nearly there. And they arrive and the two consuls, Varro and Paulus, in our sources are depicted as being tactically at loggerheads. It's probably not the case, but because I think by instinct, Roman generals wanted to win battles, apart from maybe Fabius. Most of the others just want to win battles. Not at any cost, but, you know, if the advantage is there, they will take it. And they think they've got the advantage. They think they have numbers on their sides. They think that this is a nice, open, flat place. No tricksy valleys, no horrible little ambush points. You know, it's everything. It's going to be a nice, straight, fair fight. Just a kind of thing that you want with a relatively inexperienced army with that you don't have to maneuver too much you can just line them up and throw them at the enemy and and it will it'll all happen no cold rivers like trebia where you know hannibal can create some kind of uh, you know physical and psychological problem for the romans it just seems like an ideal place so the romans divide their forces into two camps a large camp and a small camp on either side of the river alfidus hannibal is opposed to the main Roman camp about five miles away and there is some skirmishing. Pharaoh and Paulus according to Polybius and indeed Livy command on alternate days. This is one of the things that sometimes happens you know the, to avoid kind of disagreements as it were they just take it in turns and this plays into the narrative of Cannae as a military disaster because the impulsive one Pharaoh the one who is perhaps strategically, tactically inept, is the one who's commanding on the day of the battle. Whereas Paulus is more cautious, and in fact, the day before the battle, refuses to engage Hannibal in more favourable terrain that Hannibal has adopted in his position near the river. So on Varro's turn, and this is about 
three or four days after they've arrived and I've confronted Hannibal. So they're not there for very long. I mean, there's good reasons for that because they are eating a lot of food. You can imagine how many bags of wheat 80,000 men get through in a day. I guess, and the other thing is that, like, uh, in regards to the date, just quickly before we go, like, it's usually so, you know, the 1st of August is the traditional date for Kanai. Is this, given the calendar at the time is so unfixed, yeah. uh, you know, and unregulated, is, do we think it actually probably occurred earlier in the year, or do we have any idea when exactly it would have happened? Yeah, we probably think, I mean, it's not too early in the year, so it's probably about July, July. Uh, okay. maybe early July rather than early August. Okay. So I think that's probably probably where we're safe to be. It's summer. There is food available. It can be foraged. And in fact, that that second Roman camp is, is designed to protect Roman foragers who need to be out there collecting food because Hannibal's got it all mm. in, in, in his um, position. So so the big army needs to fight quickly. Mm. It's foraging, but it's it's, you know, it's good weather. It's it's a good sort of time of year, really, for, for armies to fight. They're, they kind of use these armies are used to fighting in these kind of conditions in the middle of summer. It's going to be hot. It's going to be uncomfortable for soldiers. But nevertheless, it's better than midwinter. So it's a it's an ideal time for both sides to, to engage. So Varro marches the army on his day of command, the fourth day, across the Alfidus to join with the troops who are in the lesser camp and deploys his army. And Hannibal marches across the river to join him on the other side. So in this battle, we know that Hannibal's army has its left wing against the river and looks up the river. And the Romans have their right wing on the river and look down. Or maybe it's the other way around. We're not entirely sure which way they're facing. But we think possibly that Hannibal is facing the Adriatic. Possibly. So the armies begin to deploy. And I think this is where we will get into the nitty gritty of, of, of this kind of military. OK, let's go for it. The Romans have a very large army, but it's quite inexperienced. So what they do is they deploy the Roman cavalry on the right wing up against the river. Uh, it's probably about 2,000 men. Their allied cavalry is about 4,000 men on the open side on their left. In the centre, they'll have the allies on the wings, they'll have their light infantry skirmishers in front of them, and then they'll have the triplex Achaeus, the three lines of Roman infantrymen deployed. So now, that's the Hestati, Principes and Triarii. Gotcha, yeah. Some people suggest that the Triarii aren't actually there because there are 10,000 people guarding the main camp. So the Romans have 70,000 infantry. There probably are Triarii there, but maybe not all of them. They have 70,000 infantry and they have 6,000 cavalry spread 2,000, 4,000 split. Okay, of the infantry, about 15,000 of them are levees or light infantry, including some archers from Syracuse, about a thousand archers maybe. The Carthaginians have to leave some troops in their camp as well, and the estimate is about 8,000, which I think is possibly a bit high, but nevertheless, they still need to protect their camp, particularly from the 10,000 that are on the other side, you know, who might sally forth. And Hannibal doesn't, definitely doesn't want to lose his cap and all that food. So he may have about 32,000 infantry, of which 8,000 is about our light infantry, a mix of Lontrophoroi, so these guys with spears who are some kind of skirmisher, and his Balearic slingers who are extremely effective uh, users of the sling, probably the most effective people on the battlefield in terms of ranged conflict. In terms of his cavalry, he has on his left-hand side his Gallic and Iberian cavalry. So the core of his army, the best part of his army, the 6,000 cavalry under Hasdrubal are there on that left. On the right, he has about 4,000 Numidian cavalry facing the allied Romans. The open ground suits them for skirmishing and they're not really going to engage the allies. They're just going to make them spend their time chasing them around. 
Um, so that's the plan. Hi there, I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author, and I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex, scandal and society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing, to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages, to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey folks, since you're a fan of history, you clearly want to understand how we've ended up with the world that we have. Well, I'd like to tell you about my show. It's called Dan Snow's History Hit. And on that show, you get a daily dose of history and the stories that really explain just about everything that's ever happened. If you want to know the origin stories of the cities we inhabit, what's in our kitchen cupboards, why we've always been drawn to dictators, the deep history that explains what's going on, for example, in the Middle East, well, we've got you covered. And if you'd rather be regaled with dramatic tales of powerful empires, we do that too. Get a little bit smarter every day with Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Is Mahabal another cavalry commander? Hasdrubal. Yeah. He's not. Just so I'm. Just so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. This is a different Hasdrubal. Is it? No, so this. The Hasdrubal Quartermaster General is the man who is commanding on the left. Mahabal is possibly, possibly on the right, commanding okay. the, the uh. Numidian cavalry. We see him a couple of times commanding Numidians. So yes. that's it. But Hannibal's army is flexible enough. The high command is flexible enough to come, to swap roles. So they're, they're not attached to particular units, but they are, they are moved around. But the Quartermaster General seems to be playing a really significant role in this year in various ways, keeping Hannibal's army going and has been in command of the cavalry for quite a lot of this. So it seems natural that he's kind of there leading this force of, of the elite cavalry. Got it. Well, continue with the story then. Yes. My brain is, re- is relaxed now. So the centre now is comprised of mainly Iberian and Gallic troops. Don't forget there are about 16 thousand Gallic infantrymen there's 4,000 Gallic cavalry with the 2,000 Iberians so they're deployed in the center now normally Carthaginian armies and most ancient armies deployed by ethnicity so the Africans and the Spaniards then the then the Gauls would be the sort of natural way you would deploy them you wouldn't mix them up because it's hard to communicate internally with if you mix up people but because the Gauls have been out and about in, at Gerunium operating with the Carthaginians for so long, Hannibal was confident enough to break them up into what Polybius called sperai, handfuls. It's the same word he uses for Roman manipuls, which are the building blocks of the Roman legions. So around about two to three hundred men, maybe. So Hannibal's army is stretched across the battle line in alternating groups of two or three hundred Gauls and then Iberians. And maybe there are 200 Iberians, 300 Gauls. You, you, there are a lot more Gauls than there are Iberians. So, but the point is that the army is well-trained enough that it can be articulated in a non-ethnic way, or at least in a much more complicatedly ethnic way than previous armies could possibly do. That's why at uh, Trasimene that doesn't happen. You know, the, army, the, the forces are kept relatively separate. The force that is kept separate at Cannae is the African infantry. The African infantry seem to be held 
in reserve on both flanks in deep columns. And as Hannibal's army advances towards the Romans, after the skirmishers have done their job of allowing their armies to deploy and Hannibal's outnumbered light infantry seem to be doing perfectly well against the, the Roman light infantry, and both of those forces have withdrawn to safer places. The Roman levies are at the back now of the uh, formation uh, as the Roman legions rumble on forward and the levies for Hannibal's forces have perhaps done something similar but may have also gone to the wings a bit. Hannibal's army advances at, from the centre at a double but as it extends towards the wings the troops advance slower. So what you get is a kind of bulging effect and Hannibal's army becomes a kind of I've used the bowl metaphor, so it becomes a kind of bowl, um, uh, or, a, or a very convex thing. Yeah, a very yeah, convex, a, a crescent. A crescent, is crescent, a, a crescent is actually what Polybius says. So that's what he, his army kind of moves like. I mean, he may have a very slight, thin line of reserves as well, perhaps. But the main part of the force, this of these 24,000 or so, infantry are advancing in this kind of weird way, where the middle is moving forward sooner and we'll get to the Romans sooner than, than the wings and the Africans aren't moving at all in fact they're deploying very deep columns on, on either wing of the infantry but the cavalry battle has already started and the Romans are already beginning to lose on the river side where their Roman citizen cavalry commanded by Paulus are really taking it again because they're heavily outnumbered they're outnumbered three to one on that side and the, the allies and the Numidians are stalemating each other roughly the same numbers and the medium fighting style just means that nothing's going to happen there because the, the, the Allies can't land a blow because of the evasive tactics that Numidians have. The Romans, however, their infantry is marching forward in a mass block. And in this deployment, they have actually doubled the depth of their manipals because they've got so many men, they can adopt a frontage similar to Hannibal, but be twice as deep or three times as deep. Maybe think 70,000 mm. against 32,000. Even if you take away the 15,000, 8,000 uh, skirmishers, you know there's 24,000 facing, you know, 50,000 Romans. That's two and a half to one. That's massive odds. You know, you could, they were just going to steamroller the, the Carthaginians. So they engage. At this point, the engagement starts and the Carthaginian line begins to fold, as it would. You know, it's outnumbered, it's very thin, mm. it's also not many units are engaged to start with, and they wear out quite quickly and start to withdraw. At which point the Romans move forward and encounter more units on the flank, but nevertheless they keep pushing forward. This fits the way that Romans understand how Gauls fight. Gauls come forward fast and they have a sort of riotous charge. They're difficult to resist for a bit, but then eventually they get fed up. The sun rises and gets up in the sky. They get a bit tired and then they run away. It's what happens at, at most battles that uh, the Romans sort of fight against Gauls. At least that's the stereotype. And this is what seems to be happening. The Gauls are beginning to withdraw. They're fighting withdrawal, but nevertheless, they seem to be giving way and the Romans keep pushing forward. So Hannibal's line becomes flat and then it becomes concave as it starts to collapse in and the Romans to keep pushing. Now don't forget in all the other battles the Romans managed to smash their way through part of the Carthaginian line. At Trebia they had smashed the Carthaginian centre and at, at Trasimene they had broken through the front part of the Carthaginians uh, position. So this is natural, this is to be expected and this is the Roman plan, it's just a steamroller the Hannibal's infantry, just get rid of it, bam. Unfortunately for them 
their citizen cavalry and Paulus has been killed at this point uh, has given up has been completely overwhelmed. So Paulus is with the cavalry and he was killed by the Carthaginian charges on, yeah, the, on those yeah. things. Probably killed by another Gaul or an Iberian. But yeah, so the cavalry are so constrained on the right, the heavy cavalry, that some of them dismount to fight, apparently, on both sides, which seems very curious. And I'm not sure I entirely believe... I don't think they all dismounted. I think, they, you know, where the fighting got really tight, like up, up against the river, people got off their horses or their horses were killed off like, underneath them or got tired. But... Eventually, the Romans, quite quickly actually, the Romans are broken. Now, what does Hasdrubal do? He doesn't pursue those surviving cavalry, and we're not entirely sure how many survive, but only a few hundred maybe. He manages, with the skill of Cromwell at Naseby, to swing this cavalry, victorious cavalry, back in hand round the entire Roman line and attack the Roman allied cavalry on the Roman left and on the Carthaginian right who have been skirmishing with the Numidians. They can't stand this. They, they're attacked from behind by superior numbers. They're now outnumbered 10,000 to 4,000. They're going. They, they don't last very long and they flee. And Varro is in command of the allies. So he gets away with these, with these guys. The Numidians pursue them, make sure they don't come back. And then with the discipline of Oliver Cromwell at the Battle of Naseby, um, Hasdrubal rallies these 6,000 cavalry brings them back from two victories and restrains them from ch chasing off after after defeated cavalrymen, which is very difficult to do to cavalry, particularly Gallic noblemen and all the kinds of ethos that they have. He gathers them together and attacks the Roman rear. Now, by this point, the Romans are inside a bag. We're bold, if we want to take that uh, analogy. They've been pushing the Carthaginians back, but the Carthaginians haven't broken. And they push beyond the point where the two African columns have stood. Those African columns no longer have to worry about enemy cavalry, they turn inwards and attack the Romans on the flank. The Romans are caught in a trap, there's nowhere for them for the, to go, and there are estimates that in this battle, a hundred Romans are killed every minute for the entire duration of the battle. And possibly, in the hard fighting, maybe 600 Roman legionaries are, are killed every minute in the, when they're actually in contact, and most of that towards the end of this. So they're caught in this bag, they can't escape, and they are basically more or less slaughtered. Polybius says that of those 80,000 men, 70,000 are killed and 10,000 escape or are captured. That's an exaggeration because that's the entire field army and only 3,000 escape, he actually says, so 10,000 are captured. Livy is a bit more cautious. He says something in the region of 47,000 Romans are killed, uh, Romans and allies are killed on the battlefield and about 19,000 are captured and 14,000 escape. But this is an absolutely catastrophic thing. So the Romans here, if they if they suffer 47,000 casualties, they round it up to 50,000, it'll just be easy. If they suffer 50,000 casualties, that is equivalent to the casualties that the British Army at the Somme received on the first day of the Somme, with machine guns and artillery and mines and wire and all that sort of thing. And actually, of the British Army, only 20,000 of those were fatalities. Hannibal has done this with swords, spears, slings. All in one location. All in as one well. location yeah, in horrible. a few hours. And it's butchery. I mean, it's butchery at this point. This butchery continues until nightfall and then possibly on. So the Roman army is utterly destroyed. 80 senators of the 300 senators in the Roman Senate, 80 were present at the battle and were killed. Not only was Paulus killed, but our old friend Geminus died because he was in the centre. 
Also, Manukius Rufus was in the and centre. Manukius as well. He, he, he loses dies. It. He wow. dies in this battle. There are 46 tribunes and, and Roman officers who were killed. Later on, when Hannibal's brother, Mago, who was present at this battle as well and, and plays quite important roles in, in some of the campaigns I've talked about, I've kind of rubbed him out of the, of the story, but he is there and he, he plays some important roles. He travels back to Carthage and at one point, when he's at, in the Carthaginian Senate, they say, you know, how's Hannibal doing? And he pours out this sack full of rings, golden rings that have been taken from the fingers of Roman senators. And they roll across the floor of the Carthaginian Senate. So this is utterly, utterly devastating. This is the worst military defeat the Romans suffer in their history up to that point, probably in their entire history, except possibly one battle against the Cimbrian Teutones. Yeah, where the figures may be grossly inflated. Mm. But this is this is clearly, you know, fifty thousand or so dead and a considerable number of captured, 20,000 captured potentially. Yeah, this is an utterly devastating blow to the Romans. Was there a story that apparently everyone in Rome knew of someone or someone who had perished at that battle, or was that it was that demoralising and that significant? I think it's undoubtedly the case that that must, that must be the case. You know, the citizen body is, is not infinite. You know, it's large, but it's spread across Italy. So, yeah, I can imagine that kind of story being even if it's not quite true, being really reflective of the impact on Roman demographics in, in, the, in the city and beyond. I think it really is. Well, Louis, it's such an extraordinary battle to cover, so thank you for covering it in detail. And so just before we completely wrap up, talk to us about, I guess, the significance of Cannae in that stage of the Hannibalic War, and also, I guess, the immediate aftermath, how Hannibal reacts after gaining this crushing victory. Yeah, so its significance is... Well, there are, there are different ways of looking at its significance. Obviously, it's one of the greatest victories by an outnumbered force ever. You know, it's taught in military academies now. You know, it inspires all kinds. The, the, the whole idea of a double envelopment from the from the flanks in, you know, it inspires all kinds of military strategies, you know, from Gulf Storm and Desert War to, uh, you know, even the Schlieffen plan was probably modelled on it, you know. So there are all these kinds of ideas of how military commanders try to replicate it since. But in terms of the campaign itself, it clearly was absolutely devastating to Roman morale. And one would expect the Romans to give up at this point. They've lost three major battles in three consecutive years. They've lost all the best troops. They've lost the you know great sections of their political elite. Who's left? And, you know, and how are they going to continue? This is clearly what Hannibal thinks. He sends an ambassador, Carthalo, off to Rome to negotiate terms, or offer terms at least. The Romans continue to fight, and that's another matter. But all intents and purposes, to everybody who's watching this theatre of battle, the Romans have lost this war, it seems. And actually, Hannibal enjoys that in terms of starting to receive allies who defect now. The allies think the writing is on the wall. They start leaving the Roman alliance system. Any time a Hannibal's army approaches them, they, they're willing to kind of join him. So Hannibal's immediate reaction is not actually to march on Rome. So there's a story that one of his officers, Mahabal, says to Hannibal, Give me the cavalry, I will be dining in the capital in five days in Rome. And Hannibal is reluctant to do that. And Mahabal turns around and says, Hannibal, you know how to win a victory, but not how to use it. Very famous. However, it's a bon mot, it's a line, you know, that gets in everywhere. But is it true? 
firstly, would Mahabal have said that? Yes, quite likely his officers were allowed to speak freely. So I completely believe that there were dissenting officers. But Polybius makes it clear that the rest of the officers were much more of Hannibal's mind. So it was only Mahabal oh, who yeah. dissents. He's the one who gets the line. But everybody else thinks that what Hannibal does next is the, the main thing. It's the plan and they stick with it. So there are several practical things but not marching on Rome. Firstly, the army itself has taken five and a half thousand casualties at least, maybe as many as 8,000 casualties. What that means is Hannibal's army has lost 11% of its fighting force or maybe 16% of its fighting force. In the centre where the infantry have been fighting, 25% of the Gauls are dead. 25% who have marched down have died in this battle. These are Pyrrhic victories. These, in, in anybody's book, that would be a defeat. In ancient battles, the defeated tend to take about 10% casualties and the victors take about 5%. Except these battles of destruction that Hannibal is fighting. Mm. So Hannibal has destroyed an army, but he has taken what a defeated army would normally take. So his army is in no real condition to do anything. It's psychologically battered, it's physically exhausted, and it just wants to loot and have a rest and the wounded need to be tended to and Polybius makes it very clear that Hannibal's great talent is looking after his men and he does for the next few days. So he needs to nurse the army back, get the horses ready and, and that sort of thing. So he's not ready to march. Secondly, marching through all the way to Rome which was 250 miles away, well maybe the cavalry could get there. If they could get in then that's fine but how could they hold the city? They probably couldn't get in. Horses are no good in sieges anyway. So it would throw away his entire best part of his force on a, on a vainglorious mission. Marching there would take him a couple of weeks, if not a month or so, through potentially hostile territory, through Latium, which is the hardcore of Roman territory. And the Latins will have been gathering in their harvests at this point. There would be no food for him to forage when he gets there. But there will be lots of defended settlements that are hostile to him. And then there's the enormous city of Rome to besiege. Practically, it's not, it's not possible to, to take Rome. You might frighten the Romans, but you're not going to besiege them successfully, at least not this year. What's more important for Hannibal is winning the hearts and minds. We thought about this theatre of war, and this is the great cinematic climax, you know, the Avengers 45 minutes spectacular at the end, which, you know, convinces everybody that this has been a great film and that they're all for the Avengers, even though the Avengers have been fighting, you know, amongst themselves. This is what has happened here. Hannibal has won the battle, but he needs now to win the war and he needs to get the allies to leave the Romans. And so he marches into Campania again and the Campanians mostly go over to him. Now the city of Capua, the second city in Italy, opens its gates. And Hannibal rides in on the back of an elephant to the start of the next phase of the war, which is the phase where he can really leverage the hearts and minds of the Allies and show them by destroying every Roman army that comes up against them that only he will be capable of protecting them and only he will be the one who wins this war. Well, Louis, we'll wrap it up there. He said the next stage, and I'm glad we, to be honest, it felt like a good place to end there with the elephant because we did mention that earlier going into Capua. It's such an incredible story and you're a very, very good storyteller. So you've been telling the story for many years. So you've got all those nitty gritty little facts there too, which we absolutely love. So Louis, this has been an absolute pleasure. There we go, the story of Canai following on the hot on the heels of the story of Trasimene. And it just goes for me to say, once again, thank you so much for taking the time to come back on the podcast. It's been an utterable pleasure. It's fantastic. Thank you. 
Well, there you go. There was Dr. Louis Rawlings talking you through Hannibal's victory, very bloody victory, at the Battle of Cannae in 216 BC. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I hope you've enjoyed this small mini-series of episodes with the legendary Dr. Louis Rawlings. Now, I know that really, in Hannibal's story, this is just the beginning of his conflict against the Romans in Italy. And don't you worry, in time we will return to Hannibal and we will continue the story. But for now, we're going to let it rest because there's so many other topics in ancient history that we're really excited, that we're really looking forward to cover in the immediate weeks ahead, going from ancient America to the Oracle of Delphi and so on. So stay tuned for all of that. Now, last but not least from me, you know what I'm going to say. If you'd like more ancient history content in the meantime, you know what you can do. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter via a link in the description below. If you want to know a bit more about what I've been doing on Orkney this week, well, you're in luck because you can have a look at that newsletter. Or we might be talking about ancient Egypt or something completely different. But whatever, if you want more ancient history content before the next podcast is released, sign up to that newsletter. There'll be a link in the description below. And finally... Last but certainly not least of all, if you'd also be kind enough to leave us a lovely rating on either Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from, we, the whole Ancients team, we'd greatly appreciate it as we continue our mission to share these incredible ancient history stories with as many people as possible. Give them the limelight that they definitely deserve. But that's enough from me signing off from Orkney and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.